Welcome to Supreme Myths. My guest today is Professor Sherry Kolb, the C and S. Wong Professor of Law at Cornell. Uh, she graduated from Columbia College and Harvard Law School. She clerked for the Second Circuit and for uh, Justice Blackmun on the United States Supreme Court. She has written too many articles and essays and blog posts to count. She's the author of several books about animal rights and um, sex equality. And she's the co-author um, of Beating Hearts about abortion and animal rights with Mike Dorff, who happens to be, by coincidence, her husband. Sherry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So let's start with your, 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 your book with Mike, Abortion and Animal Rights. Why don't you um, tell us what the connection is there um, and, and why you, you, you use those two ideas together? Sure. Well, so um, we were thinking about how people within the pro, like what they call the pro-life movement and people within the animal rights movement both have the, they're advocating on behalf of some living being that whose status is controverted by society. So whether it's a, a zygote or an animal, so you both you have that in common. Um, there's also a sense in which both cases involve confronting violence and what you might think of as mundane circumstances. So for instance, abortion would feel like a regular medical procedure, and yet it's distinct for, for people within that movement because of its immorality. And similarly, eating animals, eating the, the things that are taken from the animals um, that would normally go to their, their offspring, um, are also sort of mundane, like eating a piece, you know, eating pasta doesn't feel very different from eating something with a meat sauce, but one of them involves something that our movement considers really immoral. Um, the violence that happens is, if you want to call it violence within the abortion um, context, is hidden from view. So most people haven't seen an abortion or heard one described. And similarly, the violence that happens to the billions of animals that are killed for food and the and the basically the torture that happens before they die is all hidden from view. So a lot of people who don't live in a rural area go through their lives without ever seeing the animals who uh, end up uh, sliced up in their supermarkets. Um, and so part of the objectives for both groups, I think, is to try to expose what is hidden, and that's something in common. And people on the other side for both groups invoke freedom. And the people within the group think of it as a freedom to slaughter and not a, you know, not a valuable freedom at all. So, so those ways in which the two movements have similar challenges and similar uh, objectives in a way make the two seem like they go together. But of course, if you look around at the people who are against abortion, they are probably the least likely to favor animal rights of everybody in the population. And the reason for that is that there's an important distinction between the two groups. One is, one group is fixated on human DNA. So if you have one cell and it's got human DNA, then that is somebody, a, a person, and it has to be 
um, you know, it's entitled to to basically live inside the woman. And it's it's a sort of theory of human supremacy, really. And then the other group is very different because being human is neither necessary nor sufficient to have rights. Um, now, for there are people who are both in both movements, and for them, being human would be uh, sufficient, but it wouldn't be necessary. So you don't need human DNA. What matters is the capacity to experience suffering and um, to experience joy, basically to be able to to have life go well or ill for you. Right. And that and that's not true of a zygote, but it is true of an, of the animals that people consume. So, um, yet you are both pro-choice, and we'll get to that certainly in a few minutes, um, and of course pro-animal rights. So how do you get there? Well, the way we get there, as I said, we don't take the view that human DNA entitles someone to rights or something to rights. So a zygote does not have rights in our view because it isn't capable of suffering or having things go well for it or ill for it any more than a plant. But for an animal, there there is the capacity to suffer. And so our view is that the that it is wrong to inflict harm on animals and that they have a right to be free of violence. Uh, and that, you know, when a human reaches a point of what we say, like the point of sentience, which is when it's capable of experiencing pain or or whatever, then at that point, we would say abortion becomes a tough question then. And then, you Got know, it. we need to think about it and think about what's involved and so on in a way that prior to that, it isn't. So so let me, um, I, I am pro-choice too all the way down, though I do have different feelings about Roe and Casey than most progressives. Um, but let me ask you this question. What do you say to somebody who said, and this is not my position, so I'm playing devil's advocate, but what do you say to somebody who says, well, you're defining kind of hum- human as feeling pain or the ability to feel pain. Um, we define human as an organism that has human DNA, and we can talk about that for the next thousand years, but that's a value judgment that just you know, can't be right or wrong. It is simply a value judgment. Well, I guess what I would say to that is that the notion that a cell, like a zygote, which is really the position, like I've started to refer to it as the pro-zygote and I like that, Sherry. I like um, it a lot. <laughs> so like that, the idea that that is a person or any, really anybody, like that it's no, any different from like an amoeba, I think you need a religious kind of idea to go into that. I mean, I thought it was a great moment when uh, in the Dobbs oral argument, Justice Sotomayor said, well, what you're saying just now, that's a religious position. Mm -hmm. And that's really, you need that to take what is really a barely visible cell and say, that's a person just like my sister. You know, that's just, so I, I think that, yes, it's true that drawing clear lines is tough in this area and there are going to be difficult gray areas but i don't think there's really a gray area at the point of conception i think the only really the only people i guess would who would call that a person and who would define that as a human being 
are people who are coming to it with a religious ideology. Um, and then maybe some contrarian here and there would say, yeah, yeah, I think that's a person. Sure. Um, okay, this is going to be a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it. So am I committing... I'm afraid to ask this question. I really am terrified of this. Am I committing an immoral act, in your view, when I step on a roach? Well, my view, I mean, in my view, I don't really know, like, what insects can feel. I think that insects are so different from us that a lot of our intuitions don't really track with insects. For instance, sometimes they will run away from stuff. So it seems like they're avoiding pain. Roaches definitely run away from me, Sherry. Yeah, yeah, they definitely run away. But at the same time, they also will sometimes eat while someone else is eating them, which doesn't (laughs) seem normal, like by any kind of animal calculus that we would encounter, you know. So so I don't know. And, And so I'm not, I don't judge yeah, if you were worried that I, <laughs> I would judge that you step on a bug, <laughs> you know, you know, we try, we do have this thing that we try to use to get spiders out of the house without killing them. Um, but it's, yeah, I feel like the it's, and it's also almost impossible to avoid killing insects because if you even, you know, dr- walk down the street, right. it, you're, you're going to end up just because of the scale of, of insect life. Um, but yeah, I think that, that that's one of those areas where you're going to have people debating each other about what to think about that. I'm really, I think birds and mammals and fish and, you know, so on are very clearly in the sentient category and do things that you would, that only make sense if you posit that they're experiencing something. Okay. And here's another ignorant question. And I told, I did just for the, the audience, I did tell you before we started this that I am really ignorant about animal rights type issues. Um, and, we're, and we're going to get back to abortion and Dobbs in a minute. But on the animal rights issue, um, so the, we have to feed, what is it, 7 billion people or something on this planet, whatever it is, and, and it's going yeah. up. Um, and um, can we feed everybody without using animals? Yes. Yes, we can. And in fact, I'm glad you asked that question because not only can we feed them, but we can feed them much more readily if we're not eating animals, because it is very inefficient to feed an animal and then feed the animal to a person. You lose a lot of protein and calories along the way from doing it that way. Whereas if you use the same land to grow foods for humans, then you can feed many more humans. There's a real inefficiency to eating animals. So this might interest you. Uh, My wife teaches at Emory Business School, and they have a case competition named after John Lewis. And this year, Andrew Young um, is doing a pre-recorded speech for that. And I was watching it last night. This this is all happening tomorrow. And um, somebody asked Andrew Young, you know, what he's, he's 89 right now, kind of what his over the last 15 years, what he's been working on and stuff. And his answer was, we can barely feed 7 billion people. We're not going to be able to feed 9 billion people the way we're going, at least not easily. Um, and he said, there's a, I forget what it's called, but there's some kind of plant that grows all over the South, and I think other places. And he's been working on getting that plant to be able to be, you know, to, to be used as food all over the world, to some degree, to replace animals. And I thought that was really... Yeah. 
Interesting. Oh, that's great. That's great. We I, we had prior to the pandemic, we would participate in packing food to be sent overseas to areas where people are starving. And and it was and we didn't you know, we had nothing to do with selecting the food, but it was it was all vegan. And it was because it's it's so cheap to be able to provide, you know, rice and beans and whatever. Right. And it was it was like nutritionally complete so that they could take a child who was starving and bring them to health. And it was also really cheap. He said so. this plant has like um, 50, 50% of the protein you need for the day and, all, and a bunch of vitamins and minerals and good things. And if we could figure out a way to really grow it um, and have the land to grow it, it can really solve a lot of the world's food problems. I thought it was interesting. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so let's... So my understanding of your view then is... We shouldn't kill, I'm putting the right word here, living creatures that can feel pain. Is that about right? Pretty much not kill them or, or use them for their, you know, breast milk and eggs also. So it's not just that, a question of torture. In other words, if there was a humane way of using animals for food, you're against that too. I would be. and But in reality... When you're killing, um, you know, 10 billion animals, just land animals alone, there's not going to be a humane way to do that. Um, and so, I mean, part of why they have soundproof walls and all of the rest that that people, the closest we come to seeing what's going, what goes on in a slaughterhouse, is those trucks with the holes in it. And you can, I don't, you know, they're not always. I've seen them like stopped at a stop sign, and I look, and there's a little calf looking at me and it's just, you know, so to me that, that, that's really, but that's all part of, uh, the, the slaughter industry. So if right. you're taking, yeah. So many years, 1986, um, before I got married, I had a roommate who was a lawyer and he was representing, his law firm was representing Popeye's chicken. And uh -huh. there was some, uh, tort suit against Popeye's that required him to go and see where Popeye's at the time got their chicken or how they processed it, or I'm not sure the right terminology is. And huh. he was a huge fast food eater back in 1986. He came back yeah. that night as disturbed as I've ever seen him. He has not been back to Pop, and he hasn't had his, I don't, I don't know if he's a vegan, he's not had fast food chicken ever since. He was appalled at everything about it from beginning to end and how awful yeah. it was not and not just to the animals but just the whole aesthetics of the whole thing was just no it, it's 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 awful like this is the thing that's interesting is that it's awful for animals and it's also awful for people like right. they've done studies where they put a slaughterhouse into a town and then they compare that town to the next door town without the slaughterhouse and you see rates of domestic violence skyrocketing you see alcoholism skyrocketing all of these things because it's really traumatic to take life from an animal who clearly doesn't want to die like they 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 resist they move the people then get angry at them from resisting and then they remember how cruel they were and they have a hard time with that it's, so it's, I, I i did have a kind of moment about all this um i, I had a dog growing up but wasn't particularly fond of it um, and then I didn't have pets for most of my life, um, and my, my wife loves animals. When my mm -hmm. friends used to have dogs that would pass away and they would mourn for six months, 
I, I really never, I'm being honest, I just never understood it. I mean, I understood, you know, a little bit of sadness. I never understood grief, you know, griefs when you lose your brother or your mother, you know, that kind of grief. Right. And, and then I met my wife, and um, she had two dogs, one of which was terrible. But the other dog w- was just one of the greatest dogs, you know, just a great dog. And um, yeah. when, he, when he passed, I really, when we put him down, I, I, I grieved. I, I felt real grief. And it wasn't yeah. until that moment that I kind of got it. And it was kind of a come to, you know, it, it, was a, it was a moment for me. And now, as people who follow me know, I have these two labs that are 85 pounds each. I'm going to be miserable when, when we eventually have to, you know, eventually put them down. Um, and I don't yeah. think that's irrelevant to this conversation. I, no, I, 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 think it's, sorry. I think it's relevant because yeah. animal rights is a human endeavor, right? Like they right. can't demand rights. I mean, occasionally the, the primates that can communicate really do like they'll, they'll sort of sign I'm sorry when they're put in the cage because they, you know, they think maybe they've done something wrong. Oh, but That's heartbreaking. Yeah. 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 It yeah. really is. Yeah. And but the you know. It's our project, and when we feel attached, I think it makes it clear that attachment is not a uniquely human thing. Like they are, they're attached to us too, and right. and it's it's reciprocal. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I want you to know that, that, that the, the little the little reading I've done over the last forty eight hours um, has has done a lot in how I think about these things. Um, oh, cool. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on so badly was. Um, so I kind of have a reputation for speaking my mind at times when maybe I shouldn't, um, <laughs> and 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 being a little. I got in big trouble this week doing it because I spoke my mind on something that was not progressive, and I got killed by various liberals for doing it. Um, <laughs> but your blog posts—I should have said—you also blog at Dorf on Law. Um, mm-hmm. Your blog posts on the Dobbs oral argument were some of the best legal scholarship I've seen in a long time. I just loved them because they were raw, they were honest, and there there was definitely legal content, but they weren't dripping with legalese in that that kind of sense. So I really want to give you a chance, um, if you don't mind, um, to rant about two or three of the things that bothered (laughs) you the most about that argument. Oh, okay. Um, Well, thank you, first of all. That's very kind. I think what bothered me the most is not what I expected to bother me the most. Like I thought they would be very cagey and hide the ball and act as though, oh, they're just talking about this one 15 week limit. And I thought that was going to bother me because it's dishonest. And I was all set to be annoyed about that. But it kind of bothered me more that they were so open (laughs) <laughs> like I, it's one of those jokes. Like they say, you you hate passive aggressive until you encounter aggressive aggressive. <laughs> That's great. I like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it was so, you know, they were completely like upfront about their willingness to overrule Roe, their willingness to compare. Then this is, I guess, another thing that really bothered me. They're comparing Roe to Plessy against Ferguson, the separate but equal decision. They compared it to Bowers versus Hardwick. Um, the the sodomy decision saying it was okay to criminalize same-sex sex. And then uh, they compared it. They just continued to act as though this was some kind of liberatory moment for them to overrule Roe. Like it's this ugly decision that's been, you know, a a sore on the, on the arm of, of the democracy. And 
And that was really frustrating and, and, and offensive to me in part because all of them had acted like, you know, oh, it's a very important precedent. It's precedent upon precedent and, you know, all this stuff. And we kind of knew it was a lie, but the shamelessness with which they were prepared to just throw it overboard the first opportunity they got was really, really something. And it was really only the chief justice who wanted to talk about the 15 week ban. Like it seemed almost like they were hearing different cases. Right. Let, let, let me push back a little bit. OK, um, yeah. just because I do try to be somewhat neutral in these things at times. Um, so Kavanaugh and Barrett and Gorsuch and Thomas and Alito for sure. And then I think Roberts to varying degrees. Let's not forget Roberts's wife ran Feminists for Life for a long time. Yes. That's not no. that's not, you know, feminist for life. That's feminist for life. Um, you know, um, <laughs> right. uh, I doubt very much she's a feminist. Um, no. No. Uh, they were raised their formative days in law school and then clerking, you know, Roberts for Rehnquist. Um, they, they were raised on this idea that Roe is an abomination, but not be necessarily because abortion is somehow immoral or wrong, though they may think that, but because, as John Hart, John Hart Ely unfortunately said, I think he was really wrong, um, this isn't bad constitutional law. It's not constitutional law at all. And of course, he was a progressive. Uh, that statement yeah. has done so much damage over the years. Um, yeah. And I, and, I, and just, sir, just so I'm transparent here, I've on record for a long time as saying Roe and Casey are wrong. This issue should be returned to the states. But I wrote a piece for Mike, and I've said also, but but Roe is no different than any other constitutional law case. It's, it's no less or more, you know, legal than any other case. Um, it's, right. it's just that I think politically it was a mistake. But anyway, um, so they were raised on that, and that was their lifeblood. That's the Federalist Society 1988 lifeblood. And so now they finally have the power to do it, and they're kind of thinking, we've, this is something that should have been done a long time ago. Uh, we got within one vote in Casey, and we thought we had Casey because Kennedy voted to overturn Roe in 89 and then changed his mind. Full disclosure, of course, your, your husband clerked for Casey that, for Kennedy, Justice Kennedy that term. Um, but this is their moment. Like, they've been fighting this for, 30, for three decades in their heads, and now they can finally do it. Um, yeah. That's how they're thinking, I, I think. I, know, I agree that that's how they're thinking of it, and I understand that. But first, they had done this whole song and dance about their respect for precedent and their understanding that Fair. Roe is precedent. Right. So the they and so I, I guess the sense that they felt no, it was kind of like they didn't care anymore about seeming to have integrity because now they have the power. So that that was the leap that yes. that was kind of troubling. Although obviously, either way, they're going to overrule it. So in a way, it doesn't matter. But but you know, and then also Barrett saying that you know, can't you just leave the baby at a fire? Station? God, I hated that. I'm with you on that one. <laughs> I mean, it's like. Like she's completely, first of all, she, that doesn't really do anything to address the burdens of pregnancy of and what it takes from a, a woman, a person who's pregnant. And, and also if somebody has to have the baby, then they're going to be bonding to the baby. So it's not so simple to just leave them off. Of course. Of course. Um, 
I mean, one of the arguments, just to bring back the animal rights thing, one of the arguments against dairy and what sometimes when people come and they say to me, okay, I want to give up something. What should I give up first? And I usually just say dairy because dairy is such a cruel business because this first they impregnate this cow and then she loves this baby more than anything. And they drag them away. And there are all these videos of the cow, like trying so hard Ugh. and, and, you know, to get to their babies and that they'll chase like wheelbarrows, um, trying to get to their babies. And that's, so that you know that's a normal mammal reaction to giving birth is that you fall in love with the baby and and that's true for somebody who's you know expected to leave the baby at the fire station too right right so so the whole sort of the whole framework ignores the reality of pregnancy and birth and the feelings that go with that i i thought that barrett's comments legally were atrocious <laughs> doctrinally <laughs> doctrinally were stupid um, and uh, in a way, I, I was kind of glad she made them because it, it just fortifies all what I, all of my work about the Supreme Court, which is yeah. that it all it all comes down to values and experiences. All of it comes down to values and experiences. And uh, you know, she's adopted two children, and good for her. I'm glad she did. Um, and in her world, I'm sure that adoption is a you know serious alternative to childbirth and blah blah blah. It has nothing to do with the burden yeah. women have when it comes to not being able to terminate their pregnancies. And it's just, yeah, it, it was I really, think that's right. it was an insane moment. You wrote, a, you, you wrote, a, I also want you to, to rant a little bit because I do this all the time, <laughs> but people get tired of me ranting about it. So I want somebody else to rant about it. Um, Kavanaugh's use of, it's not in the constitution. The, the word abortion is not in yeah. the constitution. I, I yeah. literally got physically sick when I was listening to that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then he had that line, which I'm sure he practiced for the mirror, saying that, wait, so you're not asking us to prohibit abortion. Right. So the Constitution is neutral. Right. It's not pro-life or pro-choice. Right. You know, and this kind of like, I f it's almost like he thinks everybody in the country is stupid. Because <laughs> he might think that, though. <laughs> he might, you know, because he, you know, he busted his ass at Yale. So not everybody is, right. is that. You mean, but, you mean you mean he drank a lot of beer? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, Sorry. exactly, exactly. Yeah. Apparently, he was ranked as as the biggest drinker there um, at <laughs> nice. the time, nice. um, <laughs> which is something. But let's talk about his point seriously for a minute. So he's yes, saying yeah. the word abortion is not in the Constitution, therefore somehow it's wrong for the court to protect it, and now you go. <laughs> okay, so that's ridiculous. Um, there are a lot of words that are not in the Constitution or else we wouldn't have a whole lot of case law uh, interpreting the Constitution. It seems to me that what we do have in the Constitution, we have, I mean, we have the, the Third Amendment that you can't be quartering troops in someone's home, and it does seem to suggest that, well, you shouldn't be able to quarter anyone in their body either. <laughs> um, and then there's the Fourth Amendment, which people have a right to be secure from unreasonable search and seizure in their person. And this seems to me like a seizure to be taking women and saying, you must carry this, you must create a person um, in, in your body. And, and certainly if we look at other kinds of rights and the rights that the Supreme Court has identified, this fits well within that. So this is not any kind of a departure. One of the things that this, uh, that the argument got me thinking is that I used to think there are two issues in abortion. One is the status of the 
embryo or whatever, and the other is the imposition on women. But after the oral argument, I just started thinking that those two things are actually they go together because if you think the st if you think that the embryo is already a child, then that really alters what you think a pregnancy is. You're just kind of babysitting for a child that's already cre been created. Whereas what women are really asked to do is to take raw materials and turn them into a baby. And that act of creation has to be consensual. So I feel like the two, the two issues are really one issue. Yeah, I agree I with that. That's well said. I agree with all that. I, I would, I'm going to rant for a second then. I, 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 yeah. The Supreme Court has made up so many rights and limits over the years <laughs> That yeah, yeah. Um, Kavanaugh would agree with. We can. And this is okay. This is my my audience is a mix of lawyers, law professors, and lay people. For the lay people, I apologize. I'm going to go through this very quickly. Um, he, he's a, he's for an anti commandeering principle that doesn't exist in the text, and I think is yeah. a historical. He is for sovereign immunity by states against citizens who sue them um, under federal law. Uh, the, to their own states. That's not in the Constitution anywhere. Um, I know he would say that parents have the right to raise their children as they see fit. There's a Supreme yeah. Court case on that. That's yeah. nowhere. I know he agrees with the idea that we all have a right, if we're competent, to refuse un unwanted medical treatment. That's not in the right. Constitution. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and that one is the closest, right? So I, I have the right to, t if I'm dying, as long as I'm, or not, I have the right, as long as I'm competent, to say a doctor, you can't touch me. Right, right. But exactly. a woman doesn't have the right to control her own body? I mean, what? Because it's yeah. not in the Constitution? I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And it's also, there's an irony to the, I, don't, it, I mean, it wasn't a constitutional argument, but still the sense that there's this, uh, the sacrosanct right not to be vaccinated. Right. But right. Not, not any right not to be pregnant. Be right. and, and as though those two are comparably... Right. Uh, exactly. Burdensome. Right. I, I also want to say one more thing about Kavanaugh. Just, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I have to get off my chest. And I can't. This is just my reaction to him. I'm not saying I have data or facts or whatever. But right. he, you know, when he brings his girls' softball team to the conference or whatever it was to the basketball team to the girls to his confirmation hearing, and he yeah. keeps stressing over and over again how much he appreciates and respects women. And he's hired more yeah. female law clerks than anybody, um, yeah. and so on and so forth. All of that, to me, is a huge cover for unconscionable misogyny. Um, yes, absolutely. You do you agree with that? I do agree with that. Yeah. I think that the way, I mean, all you need to do is look at his yearbook <laughs> from Georgetown Prep, and he clearly was a misogynist. And... He lied about it when, like, if he had said, I was kind of a creep right. as a high school student, then I think people might have forgiven him. But, but when somebody is completely lying about what they were like, then that suggests that they're still like that now. So my, my, short, yeah, my shorthand way of saying that is anybody who's, and this is old cliche, anybody who says they love all women loves no women, and that's where he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, and I think that's right. Yeah, the law clerk thing was such a show, you know. Yeah. So, so is it your prediction they're going to actually? Because you'd be a minority. You're definitely a minority in the minority view on this. If it is, is it your prediction yeah. they're going to flatly overturn Roe and Casey in June? Well, I think that that was their plan on the day of the Dobbs oral argument. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the Chief Justice is able to 
reach them and say, you know, this would look bad because he's really concerned about what the court looks like. And he might be able to somehow get them, you know, I don't think he'll get Alito or Thomas. No. Uh, But, you know, to just say that, that, to uphold this law and say nothing else. So I think it may be a fractured thing, but I do think, I think there were five votes to overturn it on that day and any change would, would have been a negotiation. Interesting. Uh, yesterday, someone I respect said to me, again, predicting always is a dangerous business, but is, is, is predicting a, a three, three, three <laughs> with, with, three, uh. with, with three saying 15 weeks is not an undue burden. Three right. wanting to overturn Alito, Thomas, and one of the other, and then Barrett wanting to overturn Roe altogether. And Gor- I think Gorsuch will. It'll be four at least. I don't know about Gorsuch. See, I, I think I think he I think he follows the headlines more than he might let on. Um, but yeah, maybe. Who, who knows? It, whatever it's going to be, it's going to be painful and bad. I think is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think so. I, I'm thinking about the Chief Justice and thinking that if he couldn't convince Gorsuch to wear a mask. Right. Then may not be able to convince him to do anything. Well, else. so I've been very vocal in the last couple of days. Um, um, you know, I, 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 I think I, don't, I, I think sometimes apples fall very far far from the tree. I don't think I think there's a lot, I think if you saw, my mom has passed away, but if you met her and met me, you'd see, you'd see some very big differences. Um, but his mother was awful, and she was terrible, <laughs> and and she ran the EPA into the ground and and had to resign in disgrace under Ronald Reagan. And I think he's awful and terrible in the same way. Um, so I'm, I'm yeah. not expecting a lot. I want to shift. We're running out of time. I, I want to shift gears to, to, to something because we were talking about women and, and Kavanaugh. So I want to I want to talk about yeah. this. You wrote a piece, a, a fabulously interesting piece uh, about gun fantasies and domestic violence. Yeah. Could you summarize that piece? Because I thought that was just so interesting. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah. So. So what I said in that piece is that normally we talk about. Uh, when we talk about gun violence, we talk about the the either we look at the Second Amendment and the language and what we think it means and the right to bear arms, or we talk about how frequent gun violence is when you have guns or don't. But I think what really can sometimes drive the law in this area is what people have on their mind as the story, the narrative of what happens with guns. And part of the narrative is about domestic violence and that when women are victimized, they can use a gun to protect themselves. And that, you know, the facts don't bear this out. And it's very hard to, it's hard to compete with a very, with a charismatic narrative, Mm -hmm. but the facts don't bear this out at all. Because in fact, normally when you have a relationship, an abusive relationship, the abuser is stronger than the victim. The abuser is very controlling of the victim's time and possessions. And, and so it would be difficult for a victim even to be able to have a gun and hide it in a place where her batterer wouldn't get to it. And so the reality of how these things work and doesn't bear out the, the notion that she can protect herself with a gun. And I think there are a lot of these sorts of narratives that people have about how things work. Like they, you know, imagine, oh, you know, this, like when people think of a dairy farm, they think, oh, all the cows are happy and, you know, (laughs) we milk the cow. And most people don't even realize that they're, the reason they're lactating is because they had a baby, like humans too, like that, you know, but, 
Um, and, and so I think that whenever you run into a narrative like that, it's, it's an uphill battle. But I do think part of the part of the Second Amendment narrative is is that women can, that you can equalize the power disparity between men and women with a gun. And so the gun has it's like a feminist right. artifact and, and it doesn't work that way right. in reality at all. When I first of all, I love the word fantasy in that piece because I, I think we have so many. America has so many fantasies. I just did a podcast two hours ago um, talking about our the American public's fantasies about federal judges and how bizarre they are. Uh-huh. Um, um, so I love that word. Uh, I don't know the I, I, my my intuition is if we had the data, maybe you do. I don't know that even if in the unlikely scenario where a woman could use a gun effectively against a um, domestic abuser. I am guessing those women likely will get prosecuted. <laughs> yes, yes, and, and in fact, the at least as of 1989, I don't know if they <laughs> they've studied it since then. I right. apologize for how long ago that was, but the most the the, the women who were getting the most um, lengthy sentences were the ones who killed their batterers. Right. Um, right. And the reason for it was because they typically would do it while he was asleep rather than in the middle of an attack. Right. But the reality is that if there's if you're in the middle of an attack, that that's just not it's too late. It's too late. Right. Of yeah. course. But but even in the middle of an attack, I'm guessing they'll oh, be if they. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That... That's actually true. There was yeah. I, I, I heard about a case where this woman, her husband had a gun and he said to her, okay, our kids are not going to have parents. First you, then me. And she grabbed the gun and shot him and she ended up in prison. Right. And right. it's like, what more clear cut case could you have? And, 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 uh, and again, the word fantasy is in the title of your piece. I'll tell you what it made me think of, um, because I think not getting outside of the real world harm of, of, of domestic abuse and how serious a problem that is and how guns are not going to solve that problem. No chance. Um, everything about the Second Amendment is a fantasy. Everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, but it occurred to me, amazingly, that that word is even too weak. Um, uh, you know, it's a delusion. <laughs> no, that word's too weak. Too weak. There's, there's actually a better word. Um, so, and it was used by somebody who wouldn't who wouldn't expect. This is. I mean, the lawyers listening to this will know this, but but Chief Justice Warren Burger, a gun toting Republican from Minnesota who, who, who yeah. clearly liked his gun, you know, who was conservative and liked his guns, chief justice of the United States. When the NRA shifted from an organization that was for gun regulation and very concerned about gun safety to an organization that did all the work for the, for the gun lobby and, and gun, you know, for profits, when they made that yeah. shift, and then some law professors started getting involved and saying maybe there is a real Second Amendment right here. Berger called it a fraud. Wow. Um, and 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 I think that's actually the exact right word. A fraud yeah. on the American people. Um, it really is. And it's yeah. it's so dangerous. Like now it's gonna be starting in June, I guess, New York City subway. People are gonna be packing heat. Right. <laughs> this is not a good this is not a good thing. And Justice Alito, just, I don't want to leave him out of our <laughs> festival. Um, he was, you know, talking about the poor janitor who gets out of work and has to get on the subway. And, you know, he'd feel so much better if he had a weapon. 
Um, and there was some labor leader who made a point of calling out Alito. And it's like, don't even have our name in your mouth. <laughs> like, right. You really just. Right. You have right. You, you. This is bogus. Like you didn't care about us when it was about having a right to collect dues or any of the things that concern working people. Right. And, and then going full circle, of course, with Kavanaugh, who wrote the most gun friendly opinion I've ever read in my life on the D.C. Circuit in dissent, oh, yeah. where he said, basically, you're allowed to have as many guns as there's no limit on the states cannot <laughs> limit. How many guns? You got a thousand guns, a million guns. Does, you know, um, it's amazing. And, and of course, if if it, we were talking about the courthouse, that's the one place right. where you can. Where right. you can limit well, well and what I was going to say was what's what we all we both agree that 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 the Supreme Court doesn't care about text anyway consistently and that there are all kinds of rights no. not in the text. But to the extent one cares about text, he has de- he, he he is in favor of deleting a well-regulated militia from the text of the Second yeah. Amendment, which is worse yeah. than making stuff up. It's, it's, yeah, right. you know. All right, we, we have like five more minutes, so I want to close this out by, by, by saying something about Justice Blackman and, one, and getting your reaction to it because you, sure. you, you cook for him. Um, yeah. I tell my students all the time, um, of all the things that's wrong with life tenure, and there are so many things wrong with life tenure, the worst is the, it eventually breeds a lack of humility that almost any human being will feel if they have enormous power for life. And, and, and then I say, but there are exceptions. Every now and then you come up with exceptions. And mm-hmm. I, what I love about Justice Blackman, leaving aside whether I agree with his results or not, what I, what I, what I loved about him uh, I, from his written opinions is that he always seemed to me to be reasonably modest and humble. And, and when he and, and so again for the lawyers and law professors around, when he when he joins the opinion in Ussery, that said that Congress can't um, tell the states what to do even under the Commerce Clause, and he did it very modestly and tentatively, and then he changed his mind in um, uh, Garcia, he yeah. didn't play lawyers' games and and try to make distinctions, and so, he just literally changed his mind. Yes, and I think changing. And so my my friend, I, it's my podcast, and once a podcast, I have to mention Judge Posner. Um, <laughs> my, my friend Judge Posner changed his mind on like his entire career work after the two thousand seven economic crash, um, mm-hmm. and he changed his mind all the time um, because he liked to learn. And yeah. there are so few Supreme Court judges like that. Am I getting Blackman yeah. right? I hope I am. Yes. Yes, you are. He was very, he was very humble. He actually was kind of funny. We had breakfast with him every day and that was sort of our ch- our chance to talk with him because right. everything else during the day was done by memo. Um, but we would sit at breakfast and whatever, if somebody had a joke or something. And so one, and that was when we would bring family members to meet him. So I brought my then 15 year old niece and she was working for the school paper. So she was going to get a scoop <laughs> nice. by like interviewing him. So after breakfast, uh, I sa- he said to me, can you be in the room too? Because I'm a little nervous about the interview. <laughs> 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 it was so funny. It was like, you're nervous to talk to a child. <laughs> um, but he, you know, and he would say, this is very tough. Like when there was a tough issue, he would say, this is really, this is keeping me up there. You know, right. he, 
he never and he never became, drank the, his own Kool Aid. I guess. Right. Right. Awesome. Yeah. That's and I. By the way, I think Suter was like that too. And, yeah, I liked Suter a lot. And Lord, I, it's not because of their politics. This is not a political statement. Um, no, just as people. Just as people. That's right. Um, yeah. And uh, um, we need so much more of that these days. All right, I'm sorry. I have to. I have to call it there. Thank you so much for being on. I really enjoyed this conversation. You're very welcome. And, and <laughs> I want. I, I want people to come away from this podcast. Um, the name of the book is Beating Hearts: Abortion and Animal Rights. What is the reason I want to really go full circle. You did uh, Boston University or Boston College. Boston University, I think, did a symposium on the book. And you and Mike wrote a response to the people who wrote articles. And the very last sentences of your response um, was how this book is making these ideas and suggestions somewhat tentatively. And that you know these are hard issues and hard questions and emotional questions. And you're not... You're really trying to ask more questions and get to better answers, not taking hard line, you know, firm legal positions. Um, yeah. I thought that was wonderful. I, I think that's exactly how law professors should act. That's why I love you and Mike. Um, and I think it's how judges should act. And it's why I like Blackman and Souter. And you're really a credit to our profession for that. So I thank you for that. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. I really appreciate it. I really mean it. Thank you so much. And uh, um, uh, I hope people... Buy your book. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Take care. Thank okay. you. Take care.